Welcome to Creative Twist. I'm Sally Vanderpump and I'm going to be talking to people who have rediscovered their creativity after a break or taken a twist in their career path and tried something new. I know creativity has made my life better. Let's find out more about how it has changed my guests' lives. Nitin Ganatra's long and distinguished career in acting began after he graduated from the University of Bristol with a BA Honours in Drama, Film and Television. He went on to study with experimental theatre maestro, the late Jerzy Krotowski. He has worked alongside some highly accomplished actors and directors such as Sam Mendes, Tim Burton, Ray Winston, Richard Gere, Donald Sutherland and John Malkovich. Currently balancing a film career alongside popular television shows, Nitin has also recently returned to the theatre, winning rave reviews for The End of the Pier and God's Dice. Nitin shares some powerful insights for actors about body language and the ego. We talk about how hitchhiking across Italy to work with Grotowski changed his life, and how, after an 18-year absence, he has reconnected with his passion for painting and art. So... Here we are. Here we are. Nitin, thank you very much for for joining me. And the first person that's been in my house, I think, for a very long time. <laughs> it's so weird. We're outside, obviously. I've already imagined a rectangle around you <laughs> because I can only speak to people through a rectangle. I know, it's been so weird, hasn't it? That whole Zoom life. Yeah. But, yeah. Yeah, it's been... It's been yeah, it's nice to actually meet another person now. Not in a park as well. Yeah, so um, I did mention to you um, when we spoke before that this, that you actually were one of the people that inspired me to do mm. this um, podcast because although you're well known for your acting career, I really, I've noticed on your, or I've been really enjoying following your kind of journey with art in mm. lockdown, so... Would you could you tell me how that started and what what that's been like? Um, well, the 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 art was a strange thing because um, I think everyone's been through some weird process uh, with lockdown, and I think everyone has changed a little bit. And one of the things that happened for me in lockdown was um, it forced me to stop and. Um, like everybody, the first two or three weeks was a kind of a little bit of a, a holiday, a forced holiday, where you could get stuff done that you hadn't done, get the shed empty, throw out stuff, yeah. <laughs> um, take stuff out, tidy up, get through the cupboards. We just we did loads of things, you know, and take the kids out. I'd never seen so many men with their children in the park yeah, playing because so um and then families as well yeah. you know everyone training together everyone exercising together and there was a lovely and of course the profound feeling of no traffic mm. hearing birds and of course the confusion with my senses walking along i was like there was there was i would go for a walk every morning mm. and um hearing the birds it took a moment to figure out what was going on, I was like, God, the birds are really loud. But they're not really loud. There's just less traffic. Yeah. There's just less ambient noise now, and we can hear the birds. And um, the birds don't have a volume button. They just sing. And, and, and so with, with the reduction of the traffic, it was just beautiful. Um, and I was watching nature thrive. And... Um, 
that birds just sounded happier, you know. And um, so I had two two weeks of <clears throat> two three weeks of really hyperactivity, like fill the time, fill the time, and then suddenly everything just stopped. I I just thought to myself, you know, just don't do anything anymore. There's you keep finding a reason to run away from yourself by doing stuff. And it doesn't have to be the most obvious thing like working or gardening or I'm gonna I'm gonna repaint the house. It doesn't have to be that obvious. People can go, right, I'm gonna meditate. And they do it with a certain um tension. Mm. I'm gonna meditate because that's what we should do, right? And you kinda of go, well that doesn't sound very calming. And I I got to that point where I just literally just sat on the sofa. I got up in the mornings. I'm a bad sleeper anyway. I have been for years. It's kind of my last battle getting a good night's sleep. And um I and I just sat and I thought, don't do anything. Don't try to meditate. Don't try to be good. Don't try to just stop. And I and, and in, in stopping it's it's it was like allowing all the years to catch up with myself. And um and one thing that happened in all of that was um quite deep profound voices started to bubble up inside me and I'd kind of missed I started hearing the person that I used to be and um and the person that I liked being to be honest um and the, that person um had a freedom about them and a joy about them that um would flow much more naturally in society. So in this time, I was sitting on the sofa, staring out of the window. I, I, for some reason, I found myself eventually, after a couple of weeks of doing this, there was, there was this one deal that I made with myself, which was there is nowhere to go. There is no rush. There is, you don't need to do anything. There's no rush. You don't know how long this is going to go for. You're not going to work. Everything has stopped. Everyone's lives have stopped. Just so stop. Just stop. And it's, a, again, when, when you stop, when, when, when a person is forced to stop, and, you know, unfortunately some people have cancer or they have an accident or they overdose or some, they have a heart attack or something forces them to stop and reflect. For me it was this, lockdown, and and a well of emotions started to bubble up in me and years and years of stuff started to catch up with me. Um, so it wasn't just a peaceful moment. Mm. It was deep and it was traumatic. And I found myself, after 18 years of not painting, finding my paints from the shed and taking them out and... Um, opening them up, dusting them down, going to my old sketchbooks, looking at them and realising I've still got some spare paper because there was no hobby craft was shut. <laughs> and 
and a slightly overpriced hobby craft. <laughs> Amazon was making a killing, but you know, as I'm not working as an actor, I didn't want to spend money either. I was like, I don't know how long this is going to last. So just tighten the belt a little bit. And, and then I um, found myself drawing. I found an old sketchbook that was given to me as a present. And I started to draw. I started to kind of just let my hand free and see what happens. And, and then I painted a picture with watercolours using these old kids' paints that I'd had for years sitting in my painting box. And um, 18 years I hadn't painted a picture. It just started to flow through me. And like, like we've had this conversation about what being in touch with creativity is, when something starts to flow through you, you, you start connecting. If, it's, if you've ever danced recklessly and with abandon or sung without any ego, without listening to yourself, without worried, worrying about how you sound to anyone else, um, that sense of freedom, that sense of joyous liberation was what was that's how I used to paint I didn't think about it I just it just kept speaking mm. for me and um that's kind of what started to happen in lockdown and I hadn't I and I couldn't stop I just it just it started to pour out of me with lots of um and and also it was like relearning as well mm. I I there you know painting does take technique there is a hand-eye coordination. If I look at my early stuff during lockdown and compared to where it got to, you could see that I, I, my work began to get more and more subtle and more and more delicate and more and more crafted, less heavy-handed. Mm. But certainly a theme started to develop. I started to really find a voice again. And, and, the, and the difference between me painting now and me painting before 18 years was um, the lack of judgment. Mm. That was the difference. Yeah. I, this isn't for anybody. This is just me doing it because I don't know why I'm doing it, but I'm doing it. Yeah. And I suppose I have to give the context of what painting meant to me. I've been painting before I could read and write. And I've been rediscovering all of those paintings. I've still got them. I've still got stuff that you kind of go, this is an eight-year-old's work. My goodness, something's going on in this kid. And I was a, and I didn't grow up in the most um, comfortable of environments. Um, and I was, a, I mean, fortunately, you know, I had a, my sister was very encouraging and kept a lot of stuff. Um, and I can only, I mean, the only way I can put it was I painted to survive. Now I was a, a frightened, obese boy, um, very scared. I had a stammer. I was, um, Overeating, I was, I was a, 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 you know, I mean, without going into all the history of why, the one outlet I had, or the one outlet I found myself 
in was just drawing and painting with that and 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 what's what's interesting is i found all these old sketchbooks and the output was incredible mm. i didn't realize i'd done so much i didn't realize i mean there's one i posted on instagram recently was a pen and ink drawing in coventry city oh, center yes, yeah. and that that's an important drawing to me i was 16 i think and I remember sitting there in the cold. This was winter. I remember drawing it. And I remember sitting in the... Uh, walking 45 minutes into town at the age of 15, 16, and then sitting at a particular pace, drawing whilst I was freezing, and then walking back home. Didn't eat. Mm. You know, there wasn't, there wasn't... I didn't have any money in my pocket. Um, and I thought, wow... Unless this kid has got real ambition to be an artist, what would take a 15-year-old boy mm. to get up, put his sketch pad in his bag and his pens, put his coat on, walk 45 minutes in the cold into, into a town centre, sit down and draw, and then walk back? in the cold what what's go, what's going mm. on in that mind so i suppose i've been trying to psychoanalyze my paintings but that was that was something that i posted recently because i felt the need to share that the, i suppose it gives you context to why it's so important to me to return to that return to painting is returning to somebody who i was um, but in a slightly different way. I, I painted because I had no choice. Mm. I didn't have a choice. Yeah. I, it, and if I didn't paint, I would go mad. Yeah. I, was, I was really... I mean, remember, I remember very clearly that it's almost like I had to take myself out of situations and just, I just got to go and paint. Sorry, excuse me, I got to go. And, and if, I was, if I was fortunate enough to be around people who understood that, I could be in the room and paint mm. with people and still be okay and still socialize. So it became some weird um, need. Mm. I, I, think, I think creativity is a very important thing in people's lives. And if you don't allow your creativity to be expressed, then it'll make you sick. Yeah. It'll make you ill. It'll make you depressed. Yeah. There's that quote, isn't there, from... Um Brene Brown about unused creativity is not benign, it metastasizes, I think, oh, I into know. grief, shame and rage or something like that. Oh, well, I, well, I didn't know that quote, yeah. but that's actually quite true. Yeah. So, but you then must have been channeling your creativity in acting, do you think? Well, I, the reason why I became an actor was um, that painting, um, one painting I didn't think I could ever earn a li living out of it right. and two it it was it, I could go for months without any human contact mm -hmm. I was so introverted so it became such a solitary activity that it was becoming unhealthy in that way um and then I did a school play which this is hot you know there was one teacher that turned my life around by saying I want you to be in a school play. And I did a school play. And she said, I want you to do the next school play. 
And I was like, uh... <laughs> and I was just in the kind of ensemble cast in the first school. But it was so fun. How old would you have been? I was f- about thirteen, fourteen, okay. and. I auditioned for this, the second school play, and I got a brilliant part in it. And Lynn, who was my teacher, really took me and a couple of other kids under her wing and meant, you know, really kind of kept an eye out. And she kept a particular eye out for me. And that school play changed my life because I remember I had this solo song. Now, I'm not a very good singer, but at that time, when you're 15, you don't care. Um, you just do it. You just throw yourself into it without, again, without judgment. So I did this school play, and I remember, again, a really profound feeling of standing on stage. I've got this monologue to do, this speech to do, and... And I've got to do a song. And for a moment, I remember seeing 250 people and them just waiting. And, and, I, and I remember that thing of, what's going to happen? They're, they're all waiting for me to speak. Nobody's ever waited for me to speak. Nobody's ever listened. Oh, my God, they're waiting for me. And because I'd been so... As a kid, I'd been so introverted and basically left to my own devices. Um, it was a it was a really odd feeling of stepping up to the mark and going. They they're waiting, so get up, do something. And I and I stormed the play and stole the show. But more than that, I thought, you know what? I learned something about myself. Something blossomed in me. Mm albeit through a character. It wasn't me, but then there was this opening up. And because I opened up on stage, I kind of went, ah, maybe this this is the way forward. Maybe I can express myself through this. And and so I, my Lynn, who's my friend, you know, she encouraged me to, with along with the, the drama teacher, Jane Arthur, asked me to go and audition for the Belgrade Theatre. And then I did that. I did the youth theatre there. And then then I decided I wanted to be an actor. Yeah. And then, But I wanted to go to... Uh, I wanted a degree, just in case. Uh, that's the Indian side of me. Just get a yeah. degree. It doesn't matter what degree it is, any degree. So I got a degree. I went to oh, Bristol oh. University. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just in case you change yeah, your mind, you know. Um, and and then I became an actor. And So what did, what did you study at? I, I studied film, drama and television. So I've always been one of those people, even with my A-levels, like, you know, getting into Bristol University for a kid in my school was huge. Mm. I wasn't expected to go to university. I wasn't expected to get a degree. I wasn't expected to be a success. I, you know, so I've always worked against people's expectations. Even school teachers who just said he's never going to... Even my career teacher wouldn't give me a, a, a university form. She wouldn't give it to me. She said, it's a lot. Of, it's £15. She goes, you're not going to get the grade, so why don't you just go to a polytechnic and study art? You're not very academic anyway. And... Um, and and it was Lynn that said, I'll get it for you. Lynn was the one that got me the form, helped me fill it in, and and just saw potential. She, yeah. If it hadn't been for her, 
It's amazing the impact that teachers yeah. can have like that. I, I owe her a lot. I owe, I, I owe her and my sister a lot because were, were it not for them encouraging me and just going, you know what, you can do this. Mm. There is more there. I went into acting because it was more immediate. And, the, the, and there's a sense of channeling creativity in that that led me to work with Grotowski. Oh, yes. Which was the pinnacle of everything for me. It was the pinnacle of understanding that creativity is, is a real, tangible form of energy that you can tap into where you have, you have the discipline of your craft, but you have the lack of ego and the openness to, to channel it. To, to be able to draw on stuff that you didn't know you could do. Again, when you, like for example, I, I studied capoeira for many years and every now and then I would do something and I didn't know I'd done it. But afterwards, somebody would say, how did you learn, when did you learn those flips? And I went, what flips? But because my body was be doing it itself and uh, and yet I trained hard enough for it to catch me at the right time. Uh, and I'm not an athlete, and I've never been an athlete. In fact, I was the kid that never got picked. I was the kid sitting on the bench. You can be substitute. There's a position. There's a good title for you. You be the sub, and we'll call you when we need you. And so I was never an athlete, but I'd learned martial arts, and I'd studied capoeira. And again, it's about flow, and it's about being able to tap into that. But you need the discipline to be able to do that. You need to be able to... So with Grotowski, it was very much driven on making the body a tool mm. that worked for you. So where and when was Grotowski? Was that... Um, it was during you? university. Oh, really? uh, yeah. It's a long story. Okay. <laughs> but it is, it, is, it is one of my... It is like one of those life-changing stories. But, but I ended up reading a book that... And I was very angry by this point in my second year at university. Because my first year at university was amazing. I was like, oh my goodness, look at all this. this. Look at this library. I would have to walk 25 minutes to a little shed, in the, in, uh, 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 which was called the reference library. That was it. It was a library the size of a shed. And that's where I did my A-levels, my homework. And I would walk. And it, you know, it was tiny. Uh, that was in, Coventry. in Coventry, yeah. So for me to get to Bristol University and be in an environment where there was these big white houses and wide open roads and mm. being in a drama department where uh, there were all, all these students that had, they knew so much, they had clean complexions because they had vitamins when they were younger. They, you know, they had salads. Their parents <laughs> fed them salads instead of, you know, jacket potatoes and pizza. Um, so I, my first year was fantastic. And then in the second year, I just fell into a deep depression. I, suddenly I went into some existential crisis about who, uh, is this it? It's just a bag of tricks. It's just a bag, acting is just a bag of tricks. And particularly at that time, it was all about big voices on stage oh, yeah. and yeah. we speak, you know. Every, every now and then you emphasize a particular word. And um, it was it was really wanky. 
It was really, it was, it just didn't, I was like, you know what? There's something missing in all of this. There's got to be something more than this. What is it that is missing? And it was something deeply spiritual that was missing for me. Because I'd already decided I wanted to be a monk. I'd already decided that I don't want to be in society. I don't like it. I don't, not part, I, it doesn't work for me. So I'd already had, since I was a kid, deep spiritual, inclin, you know, inclinations, leanings is the word, isn't it? Um, and so I, and, and then I was really rebellious against the, there was these students that had done a Grotowski workshop and I was like, Who's Grotowski? And they were, going, they were all, I saw all these middle-class students going to sitar concerts and being very hippie, running through woods with sticks. And uh, I was like, uh, they're going to sitar concerts and classical Indian, they're appropriating my culture. They're tourists. And I was very angry, very arrogant. And then I did a one-man show and a lecturer came and said, you need to work with Peter Brook or Grotowski. And I was like, well, fuck Grotowski, I've seen them. Sitar concerts. And I'm going to cut a really long, brilliant story oh, short. Okay. I mean, because I don't think you... I mean, it's a good... It's, it is a good story. I mean, I ended up meeting Peter Brook and saying, come on, Pete, you're going to give me something. I really was a young monk looking for a teacher. I really was hungry for a teacher. I ended up hitchhiking. Well, basically, this guy gave me towards the poor theatre about Grotowski to read this lecturer. I read it pretty much in one or two nights and completely changed my life. And I said to my best mate then at the time, Simon, I've got to read. I've got to go and find this guy because and it was like it was an old book, like an ancient m mystical book. Because it talked about holy theatre, it talked about an actor being in a state of grace, that the audience weren't just watching a play, they were witnesses to an event that was happening there and then. And all this sort of terminology was put, just strumming strings in my heart that I, I don't know why, I was going, this is what I need, this is what I'm after. It can't be just a bag of tricks with a big booming voice and pointing your right foot towards the audience and your left foot. You know, all this yeah. stage drama technique, which is, again, it as a genre, it's fine, but it didn't touch me. Mm. I was impressed. Like ballet, you can be impressed. I'm impressed. Mm. You, you've got great flexibility. You can leap really high. But when you see a ballet dancer who moves you with something. There's something going on inside. It's not just technique. That's what I wanted. Mm -hmm. And um, so I read this book and one of my friends said, hey, but he's, he's got a school. I was like, I thought he was dead. You know, because <laughs> yeah. it seemed like such an old book. I ended up hitchhiking to Italy and sitting on the doorstep of a theater called um, the Piccolo Theatre. Teatro in Pontedera. Took me three days to get there and many adventures wow, of sleeping rough. So I got there and I did a, I was asked to come back and do an audition and I ended up working with Grotowski for a couple of years and oh, wow. in the middle of my university and then going so back. Did you take a pause for a Yeah, they let me, oh, right. they let me.
So he just turned up on on spec on his yeah, doorstep. Literally, and... I mean, it, wow, that's a, that's a mission, isn't it? I mean, that's a yeah. I didn't. I was, you know, I ate when I could. I only had fifty quid in my pocket. That was it. That's all I had. And if I ate, I ate. If I didn't, I didn't. And I managed to kind of hitchhike all the way. And with people, you meet people along the way, go, who are you? And in those days, you know, Italy didn't, they didn't see many Indians back then. And so I was a bit of a novelty as well. And people were interested and, and people would come up and go, who are you? What are you where are you from? Really? You don't look very British. <laughs> and I didn't speak Italian, so I would have to then start communicating in a different way. And... Um, and so, and again, remember, I've never left the country. I'm a kid from a corner shop in Coventry who suddenly read a book and taken off going, this is the guy that, this is the guy I'm looking for. And ended up in Italy. I've never left the country on my own before. And just making, learning as I'm going along. And then Grotowski, when I finally met Grotowski and he said, come, you can come and work here. That's what I'd been looking for, that level of craft in acting that wasn't just a bag of tricks, mm. that what he was asking from me was total, something total. I'm not just talking about... If a dancer... A dancer has to be able to be flexible mm. and physically in charge of their body. An opera singer has to be able to sing and do their scales a pianist has to... You can't go on stage as a concert pianist not having technique. You can't wing it. Mm. You have to practice. And with Grotowski, it was the same. You have to be able to do all of that. You have to do all that. Your, your, your entire body is an instrument. Mm. and But at the same time, they are... The one thing that he was demanding of you was to go, I want to see you. I don't want to see a trick... I don't want to see a version. I don't want to see an excuse. Mm -hmm. I want to see you. And that involves diminishing the ego. And to be without your ego, if you ever experience it, it's just such a relief. It's such a joy to not be with your ego. And it's again, it's profound. Um, and I, when, unfortunately, when I see actors, I see them acting with their ego. And... It, it doesn't move me, but then occasionally I'll do a job where I know that I'm, I'm opening. There's an opening going mm. on and I'm doing something um, egolessly. Yeah, and I think it is quite transformative when you see that, isn't it? That you really see into someone's soul, basically. It's a, a sort of, mm. It can be a quite transformative experience to watch someone... Yeah, and if you can see it, you know, if you've got an audience of 20 people, not everyone is necessarily going to be able to see mm. that. But if you can communicate on a level that profound with one person, then that's quite important. But it, at the same time, I'm aware that it's an egotistical thing to say, to, to say... I am bearing my soul. Mm. The process of losing your ego has to be humble, and um, and 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 it, and and that's it. Mm. There is nothing else. As long as you're doing, as long as you are 
keeping to the structure of what's required of you, let's say it's a play, that you are not suddenly taking 20 minutes of rolling around on the ground crying and ever, all the other actors are looking at their watches going, uh-oh, he's bearing his soul. <laughs> We're going to be here quite some time, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> you know, um, it, 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 it's, it's not... I'm also aware I catch myself making sure that I catch myself going, don't be a spiritual egotist. Do you see what I mean? You're yeah. not you're not pious, you just check yourself, that's all. Check your own self. That's all you can do is check your own ego. Are you coming from a place of ego? Are you coming from a place of love? Mm. And and that's what I try and do really. Yeah. Every job I do I suppose I've played some odd characters. I've always I've played some odd characters and one of the things that I've learned is I'm willing to look stupid. And a lot of actors don't want to look stupid. Yeah. They don't want to look e weak. But at the same time, the reality of the world that I'm living in in the society that I don't like living in <laughs> is yeah, you it's being in a boxing match. And you've got to survive. Yeah. And unfortunately, that's when you do need your ego. And that was one of the parting words of Grotowski. When I left Italy, he said, make sure you're e you have your ego to protect you. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, and he said, your, your ego is like a suit of armour. It will protect you. Don't You can't just walk through life without your ego. People will take advantage of it because everyone else has got their ego yeah. as well. And and a lot of people in life don't know that, that it's dominating mm. them. So I, I use my ego that way. So then you came back from Italy and carried on at university. Yeah, and I finished my course at university. I spent a year paying off debts. And then moved to London, lived in a bedsit for 12 years and uh, worked as a waiter for seven years until um, I got forced into becoming an actor in a way because I got made redundant. But it, during all that time, I was painting relentlessly. So painting oh, God, no. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I've got, I found a book the other day, just a, a, a couple of... Cat coming in. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's lovely. A cat can... Just walk across the room with not a sound. Yeah. I even found stuff that, um, sketches from Italy, drawings that I did in Italy. I, I found a little sketch I did of Grotowski. And um, so, yeah, I never stopped. Throughout all of this, I never stopped. I mean, it was still my longest relationship has been with painting. So, um, and then I moved to London and then started trying to find an agent and... Became a became a jobbing actor. So did the painting just sort of fade into the background then? And then no, it stopped for a couple of reasons. Um, but my focus got split yeah. into different directions, and it's having that time and energy to be in the right headspace to paint. Because when I when I painted, I painted non-stop, mm. and when I started a painting. It, I never really went back to it. I would start and not stop till it was finished. Yeah. So it meant a nine hour straight coffee and cigarettes. That's all it was for me, black oh, wow. coffee and cigarettes. And I would start an oil painting and 
just battle through until it was over. And it wasn't therapeutic in the sense that it wasn't a pleasant experience. I it's interesting. I find that quite often that it's any form of creativity has that sort of therapeutic journey to some extent that you start off, oh, is it? This is lovely. I really enjoy this. And then it gets to, you know, oh, God, actually, it's really difficult. I think I might give up or tear it up or whatever. If you're really going for it, there's quite, there can be quite a painful process, can't it? Sometimes? Yeah. And I think if you, if, I think that's a lot of problems with people in life where when it gets difficult, they stop, they give up. Because inevitably, if you're going to do commit to something, it will it will be difficult. There's a, there's a romantic period where you kind of go, I'm painting, and then you realize, and then you judge yourself and go, well, this is not right. This is not very good, and so I'm going to try a bit harder. But you can't get proportions right, or you can't. This doesn't mm. work, or you don't know how the medium works, and and it's the same with acting, as well, where people go, oh my god, I've got to learn lines. What do you mean I have to get up at five in the morning? Mm. Um, it, it's work. It's not a holiday. You know, and, and I'm sure there are... Even yoga gets difficult. You know, it's okay to have a stretch. Have a stretch. But if you want to do yoga, you're going to have to push yourself. And it's that discovery that not every... I, I'm not naturally good at anything. I've never been naturally good at anything. The only thing I think I was naturally good at, and had I pursued it as a career, had I gone to a foundation school, had I gone to art school, I would have had the technical um, training as well. I never had any technical mm. training, really. I did A-level art, and that was it. I still struggle with art. Well, you know, when I'm painting, I still... It's like being a musician but not being able to read music. Mm. Had you done... Had you had that kind of little formal foundation to it as well... You know that in, as a painter, you have a thing in your head that you want to put on paper, and it's never quite. You maybe you'll find a, a different version of the thing in your head, but I wish I had the technical capability of going. I want to. I have an image in my head, and I want to recreate it mm. on paper, and it becomes a real battlefield for me when I paint. I mean, my kids have seen me go through tarot painting. Yeah, I saw, I saw on Instagram that you tore some up. God, I spent hours yeah. on that. And in the end, I was just like, Christ. And I just got really upset. And, uh, and, that, and then I found loads recently that I've torn up. Oh. Yeah, I found loads. So it's not... It, um, I threw... Somebody... I had thrown a lot of them away during lockdown. There's lots of paintings I'd thrown away. As well, I'd torn them up and thrown them in the bin. But um, it—it's it, not a hobby. It's really odd. It's—it's um, it's work as well, mm. you know, to be able to create something. But it's quite sort of private work in a way as well, isn't it? And then, so what, at what point do you think you thought, oh, I'll just put this on Instagram and see? My friend said that Instagram's a very gentle thing and I started looking at it and I started seeing artists and stuff. And so I made a decision with Instagram. After I'd done it a little bit, I didn't post very much. I, I started to get understand what I wanted to do with Instagram. And, and what I wanted to do with Instagram was explore my thoughts in a much less toxic arena and 
maybe explore myself and allow myself to be more of myself and be a little bit more vulnerable, knowing full well that you shouldn't be completely open mm. with your life. Because we all, you know, there are, there are things that I don't wish to share with anyone. Mm. With anyone. Um, so there are things that are private and there are things that some people would say, but that's okay to share. And I'm like, no, I don't want to share that with people. Mm. So I don't spill everything on Instagram, but I certainly allow my vulnerabilities to come out a lot more on Instagram because it just seems a little bit more gentle. Mm. I, I, I'm not a fan of social media generally, unless you're going to use it as a tool. But I noticed you've had some really beautiful responses, quite emotional responses on your Instagram posts as well. Like there was a painting with a hand on their shoulder mm. and you had some beautiful, really poignant mm. responses to that where that obviously touched someone else and helped them to express something. Yeah. Well, it touched me. I found that picture by accident and it really touched me. And... Um, and 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 then the responses to it were quite beautiful, and I suppose I did when I post on Instagram, I don't do it for anyone else, mm. but but I do get a response. I mean, uh, and people people seem to open themselves up in a way as a response and I reply you know because I'm grateful for them sharing their feelings and you know it, it's touching mm. and um but, but I suppose what baffles me most is the reaction to, to my paintings because again um, some people talk about obviously you know one of the reasons I never used to share my paintings before was because people don't really look at them you know, painting as an art form is a really weird world as an art form because we don't know what makes a great painting mm. and what doesn't. Why would somebody pay, you know, a thousand pounds, five hundred pounds, two hundred? Why would somebody pay twenty pounds or twenty million pounds for a painting? It. I don't understand why that make. Why would that be a great piece of art and that one not? Um, it's subjective, so yeah. it's really what you like. And often people see paintings and just give it three seconds of their time and other paintings you can't take your eyes off. Mm. And so the responses to my art have become more interesting to me because yeah. I I never... On Instagram, when I started posting them, it wasn't because I wanted anyone's approval. I didn't want anyone to. I mean, I don't. I'm just sharing this. Yeah. I'm not looking for. An I think opinion. that's a really freeing thing about maybe doing it, at a, you know, with maturity, because you're not. It's not. It is a sharing rather than a a, a need for permission or whatever. Yeah. It's just. It's, but I think your the paintings, a lot of them really touched on because of lockdown and whatever. There's a real longing in them, isn't there? So a lot of the sky paintings, or there's a reaching for freedom and 
That's mm. how I interpreted Well, a theme started to develop, but again, I had to... What's interesting... What's interesting is the amount of times when I've just stared at a blank piece of paper and tried to draw something, and the, the amount of times when it just arrived, I had to stop my thought process and just see where your pen travels. And it's the same with acting. When I try to construct something and go, this will be good, this is going to look great, I start acting. Mm. And one of the differences that I start seeing in myself when I'm acting or whether I'm painting is, and this is the key to, to it, is the difference between acting and painting and just being. And I began to understand what being, what is being. Just, you know, you hear this phrase thrown around a lot. It's the difference between acting and being. And just be yourself. You hear people say that to you and you go, oh, do you know how hard that is for me to be myself but there is another type of being which is in creativity where you it, you you are present in a way that you're not usually present you know you're not hiding behind stuff you're not kind of disguising i disguise a lot you know i disguise a lot of stuff with a joke Mm. and um, cheeky smile, cheeky Masood from EastEnders, <laughs> you know, um, and that's fine that's because... That's survival skills, isn't it? I mean, everyone does yeah. that to some But when I, but I, 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 I'm addicted to that world more. I'm addicted to the creative world. I'm addicted to, because I feel more myself. I feel safer. I feel um, more human or more in touch I just feel more real when I'm being creative than I do not being creative and I'm more myself when I've got a paintbrush in my hand or when I'm you know when I'm performing I'd much rather it flows you know and mm. that, that's what that's what I thrive on it's kind of my oxygen the cat's right? really snoring yeah. <laughs> okay <laughs> no, he's a tough crowd. <laughs> so yeah. I can't imagine you not painting now, can you? Like, can you? How does it feel to come back to it and go, why haven't I done this for such a long time? Was there, um, Do you think you will just I, carry on now? I, I don't know. I mean, I... Um, you see, I tried writing as well, mm. but I find writing really difficult because it's not in my nature. I, for some reason, I can sit and paint for five hours without, mm. but I can't sit and write for more than half an hour, even though I've got stories. Do you think that's it? Because I know what you mean. I do a bit of writing here and there and that, and I don't know whether that's an ego thing, that you, you're, we're much more conditioned to have our kind of Oh, that's the wrong word. Or I, uh, writing seems to come from the head mm. for me, and um, even though I, we work in the industry of storytelling, mm. um, whether it's painting or dance or movement or mime or acrobatics, you're still telling a story, mm. and so in in storytelling, you've got to um, again, what's your vehicle? What's your, what what how are you going to carry this story? Is it going to be a boat? Is it going to be an airplane? Is it going to be a hot air balloon? 
Is it, a, you know, how, what, how are you going to tell this story? Actually, I remember you, one of your posts, you said, what is the song of this painting? Yeah. Does it kind of come to you like a song? Yeah, it does. That's a, an interesting observation because I learned to sing in Italy and I, but I can't sing. If you were to give me a pop song, I would sound terrible. But the songs that I learn in Italy, I can sing with my heart. And when I sing them, it connects me to something. So again, um, when I start painting, it's all, it is literally, the, the, it, I think it does feel like that. It does feel like a song. And I don't, again, I don't spend too much time analysing what I paint mm. because I don't think it's my job. It's up to other people and how they react to what I do. I, you know, we, we, you know, there's, I've got songs that could reduce me to tears that other people would go, oh, that's yeah. a bit cheesy, that one. Yeah. And, but that's because it, I connect to it emotionally. I was talking to um, my daughter about this the other day. There are certain voices and certain songs I just, the first line, and oh, it yeah. will make me cry because, you, and I was saying to her, I think it's when it comes from their hearts and mm. it goes straight to yours it's there's some there is some magic <laughs> when that happens isn't there yeah but they may not have been singing from their heart here's the thing they were in a recording studio possibly stoned possibly doing a load of cocaine oh. and there was a party going on no. in the recording <laughs> you know uh, possibly possibly yeah. you know and um it doesn't matter though it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what their intention was. It's how you receive it. Those notes, those arrangements and the notes trigger in you that matters. And um, we can project anything that that person was having, they were singing from their heart. Maybe they weren't. And I think that's what one of the things that the painting has taken place with, with, with me is, it doesn't matter what anyone thinks. I'm just going to do it anyway. Mm. Because I have to, and and in the end, it's it's it may be from a place of ego, where I'm sharing my journey on Instagram, but it doesn't matter what people think. You mm. know, if if somebody responds in a positive way, that's great, and that and I'm grateful. And and some people have responded in ways that I didn't expect them to, to my paintings. I was like, oh gosh, you see all of that? Mm. You see that? I, but then, you know, I, I'm not trying to manufacture it. No. So you don't want to manufacture anything. Uh, that's what I was trying to say earlier on about acting and being. When people are acting too much, they're manufacturing a performance, they're manufacturing a, an emotion. There's a lot of chest beating and crying and and the audience will be moved. And unfortunately, they are. Mm. And when you get a performance or a work of art that's being, it's quite special and it's unique. I guess one of the things I was wondering is whether there's a connection between the sort of close observation of painting and drawing and the close observation of people for characters. Do you think that yeah. one feeds into the other? Yeah, absolutely, because... My main obsession was portraits as a kid. I did a lot of portraits, did a lot of faces, did a lot of eyes. And um, 
so portrait portrait painting was my thing and uh, when I was 16 I read Desmond Morris's man watching mm. book on body language and I became obsessed with studying human behavior and body language and people and um and often I read people body language but I'm not as good as let's say Darren Brown at being able to say I know what you're thinking because most people will say no I'm not prove it and you kind of go I can't you you're going to have to just sit with that yourself but I I've been in situations where I I can go, uh-oh, I, I saw a flicker in the eyes where somebody's just got bored and I've overstayed my welcome. Mainly auditions where I've gone, oh, I just read that, I read that. Okay, well, it was nice to meet you <laughs> and, and I can read it yeah. and, and I have an obsession <laughs> with body language. I studied mime for a long time. So, and mime is all non-verbal communication and... With painting, it's always been ha it's a similar thing where some of the faces and drawings and bodies that I've done um, are, are, are definitely telling a story. Mm. Just as when I've taught acting and I've done acting workshops, often I will do non-verbal scenes where I'll get two people to have a conversation without, with just pure body language, mm. with just looks. And having been a waiter for many years, and I've, I've been a voyeur all my life, you know, and I, uh, being a waiter, you can really, if you have the time to stand still, mm. you can read people. And you can sit in the joy of seeing non-verbal communication has been huge for me in, mm. in, in, um, as an actor. And, it, and, it, and again, I've been studying faces and bodies since I was a kid. So it's all fed in to everything else. But, uh, but I do try and apply it in, in, in um, my acting. You, you can see people, the body will react to a thought before the word comes out. That's what I've learned in, in, in acting. And I've watched good actors where... And I've observed myself. So, for example, as I was talking to you, I naturally scratch my beard because I'm looking for a word. And I moved before I said it. Mm. Now, what I know now, I've understood there's a process of thought and the body then communicates it. And then I articulate it through words. So if you are really relaxed as an actor and you're on top of your character, you know your character, you will see that the body will start talking first. The body will naturally talk first. The body will react before it gets a chance to speak. Mm, I love and, that idea. I haven't really thought of it like Yeah, that. and again, that comes down to the work that I did with Krotowski. Mm. That comes down to everything I learned there. Um, because if you can get a unity between your mind, your heart, and your body then you're doing well as an actor. But as a person. As a yeah, person. and often my problem with watching television or some films is that I'm watching people trying to remember their lines. Mm. And I'm watching people and I'm watching people acting. I'm not watching people being. And when I do see that, when I do see a performance or I do see a film or I do see a piece of 
television where I'm going, wow, I forgot you were acting. Then I'm in. Mm. I'm now in your story because now I'm not watching you trying to remember your lines. I'm not seeing a bag of tricks. I'm seeing somebody being, which allows me then to just enjoy the story. Mm. Tell me that story. There are people who can speak without moving a muscle on their face. And, and you're, you're beginning to, as a viewer, impose your story on them. I think that's that's when you're not being told what to think. You're not being told what to feel. You're not being you're not sitting there going, "Oh, that poor girl. Her tears are real." Yeah. And you kind of, you know, I remember this. I've just remembered this. Grotowski used to say, "You know, when people pump emotions, it's fake. But what you're doing is essentially fake." And that's the contradiction in the art form, which is as acting. You're fake. You're being fake. None of this is real. None of this is natural. So how do you score that with yourself in terms of you know what you're doing is fake? And he said, you know, when you do a scene which is high emotion, he said, at that pitch of, at that moment of tears, hold it back. Because there's nothing more painful than watching somebody holding back their tears than letting out their tears. Once they've started crying and chest beating, they're indulging and we're out of it. We're gonna sit back and go, oh, she's crying or he's crying. Whereas when you're watching somebody really battling to not cry, that's painful to watch. Mm. Anyone who's got kids knows that. When, the kid, when your kid's upset and they're holding it in there's nothing more heartbreaking because mm. you want them to just just tell me what's going on. Just tell me. Cry if you want to cry. Shout if you want to shout. But when they're holding it in, it's really painful. Yeah. It's very painful to watch. And um, and I, th I remember Grotowski telling me about that sort of stuff. And he would say, turn it into a song. Oh, that's, yeah. At, the, at that moment, turn it into a song. And, and I'm not... I was... That has many layers to it and many different meanings. I don't mean he literally, I don't mean it literally where he says, turn, start singing at that moment. Yeah. We're going to, uh, you know, my entire family's just died. I'm going to sing a song. <laughs> no, it don't, it's not that literal. It's, it's, yeah. it's about going softer, just be more delicate about it. I, th I think I sort of started this with the idea of. Someone like me who was on the cusp of going back to something that they've always loved doing, but maybe you're teetering on the brink thinking, I don't know what to do, or yeah, the ego getting in the way and stopping you from having the confidence to do it. What would you say? I, I suppose person? I can only look at my own sense of regret. You've got nothing to lose. And one of the things I've learned in lockdown, but returning to painting, I could do this all day, every day. Unfortunately, I have to try and earn money. If I could do this all day, every day and earn money, I'd be a happy bunny because I'm following what I really, what my heart really desires. And, but it's taken a good 18 year absence from it to figure it out and I, I, I think if you're clever you don't have to wait 18 years 
to understand that the only person that's stopping you is you and it's going to be uncomfortable at, to follow your heart and it's something that I think I'm living through that I would be able to say to my own kids when they grow up and go, you know what, in the end you follow your heart and you can't go wrong. You've got nothing to lose because you followed your heart. And um, that doesn't make it mean following your heart is going to be easy and it's going to upset other people because you're not going to be playing the role that they expect you to play. But it, it will be a wasted life then and it will be something you will regret. And I've got, I, I, I suppose I'm trying not to be retrospective because I try and be present and try and keep moving forward. But in a philosophical sense, people can say, well, it happened at the right time. And I'm like, yeah, but my wish it had happened earlier. But um, would the question is, would I have started painting if lockdown hadn't happened? Probably not, because I would have been still in the same habitual way of thinking. I would have still found other distractions. And you, with regards to you, what would I say to someone like you who wants to follow something but has been stopping herself from doing it you have nothing to lose anymore everyone will adjust everyone will cope but if you and and it really comes to facing yourself on this and who you are and i think there will be a lot of people who've had this a similar experience don't you I think a lot of people will have gone through the kind of very we're programmed to be productive and do things and carry on Mm -hmm. doing 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 but I think there will be quite a lot of people who've discovered something that they haven't done for a long time in a creative way so it'll be interesting well it's also how you live the rest of your life after this lockdown you know it's forced people to really reassess their situations it certainly did me Mm. And um, do I want to be that person anymore? If I if my kids came to me with the same problem that I've had, what would I say to them? Mm. And I, uh, hands down, I'd have to say, listen, do what makes you happy. Go follow your heart. If you want to change direction in your life, follow your heart. It's not too late. It's just you don't have to have the pressure of expectations on yourself. And that's mm. the difference. If I'm not judging myself with my painting. But I am following my heart. And that's what I would advise my kids. That seems like a lovely point to leave it. But thank you so much, Nitin. I've really, really enjoyed it. And it's been a real I've really real enjoyed pleasure. it too. Thank and you. thank you for asking me. Because obviously I've said things that uh, I wouldn't necessarily share with anyone else. But now it's out. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Creative Twist. I hope you've enjoyed it. Show notes and resources can be found on my website, sallyvandpump.com slash podcast. I'd love to connect on social media at Sally Vanderpump and hear what inspires you to get or stay creative. Thanks to Rosie Kernahan for the podcast photo, to Vicky Arledge for composing the music, to Jen at Studio 2711 for the artwork and to Tina Cooney for her branding.